So my own reading and studying here in Nehemiah 9, I see 10 steps, and we'll give you in this ninth chapter that served to drive us to get concerned over uh, sin. So the first is that getting concerned over sin expresses itself in brokenness. Expresses itself in brokenness. Remember the quote I've used from Vody Bacham that said, if repentance is the highway, then brokenness is the off-ramp. And so if we're going to have true repentance, then part of that is that we have to be broken. Over what? Obviously our sin. Look at uh, verses 30, verse 33, and then we just read 38. But look at 33. It says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. And then 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant. We looked at Daniel 9 this morning in his prayer in Sunday school, and 17 times he uses a plural pronoun, we or us. And so none of us is without sin in the church, right? But we talked about it's easy to get convicted about other people's sin, but God really is only going to uh, forgive when we together collectively come together and confess, repent our sins. But think about how most of us do. It's much easier for me to point out someone else's sin, the guy sitting in the pew beside me, you know, my neighbor, my co-worker, uh, classmate. It's easier for us as a church to say, well, that church over there, you know, is being sinful, you know, where that denomination's being sinful as opposed to confessing our own sins or, hey, we live in Tennessee, the Bible Belt, look at those Californians and how they act. Or, hey, we live in the good old U.S. of A. We're not like Iran. But the whole thing here we see over and over in Nehemiah is that we should be broken, repent over our sins collectively. And so that's what the people were. Look, at back, look back at what we read in verse 1 to 4. It says that they assembled themselves with fasting, sackcloth, and earth or dust on their heads. If you know anything about Scripture, all of that points to mourning. And so mourning over their... Uh, sins. Now imagine if you showed up to church and myself, I was wearing all black, my head was covered, sobbing, wailing, had dust all over my head, you know, and funeral music playing back here in the background, you know, you'd be thinking this is going to be a pretty pretty heavy sermon, right? Um, if you remember back when we looked at uh, Amos in chapter 5, that was really the picture uh, that he had. We all know the shortest verse in Scripture is what? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Well, why did Jesus weep? Because Lazarus is dead? Or was it really truly over the brokenness of this world that leads to death? I mean, he knew he was going to resurrect him, right? So he wasn't necessarily mourning over that. He's mourning over, you know, sin that then leads to physical death. And so, you know, are we broken over our sins, mine, over what we commit as a church, what we commit as far as Americans versus pointing the finger at other people? Um, turn to uh, um, Psalm 51. We probably be there a couple of times. You know the background of this psalm, David wrote it. 
after his affair with Bathsheba. In verse 17, we looked at this this morning. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So more than a $20 bill on the plate, you know, or showing up to church in a three-piece suit, God would rather have us a broken spirit and a broken, contrite heart over our own sins than just throwing money in the plate uh, towards Him. So getting concerned over sin expresses itself in brokenness. Anything anybody wants to add on that? It's Sunday night, so you know we'll have discussion if y'all want to discuss that. Any other verse that comes to your mind or anything about that? Alright, on to step two. Uh, getting concerned over sin must include personal and corporate confession. Corporate meaning us together. Look back at verse 2 and 3. It said they separated themselves from all foreigners, stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in the, their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of, a, of the day. What does your Bible say? Mine says a quarter of the day. Some translations I read, it said three hours. Quarter. quarter of the day. Does anybody say anything other than quarter of the day? Mine says quarter of the day, but in my notes it says about three hours. Three hours? Okay. So can you imagine that? They had a six-hour worship service, three hours of which was preaching, reading the Word, and three hours was praying. Dr. Wearsby said in most churches today, a six-hour service, three hours of preaching and three hours of praying would probably result in some requests for resignations. And he's probably right, right? He goes on to say, he said, We live in the age of the digest and fast food, and this mentality has invaded our churches. We piously sing, take time to be holy, but we aren't really willing to pay the price to do it. And so true worship includes a lot of elements. Singing, praising God, testimony, praying, hearing the scriptures, confessing sin. But when's the last time you heard a church worship service, even five minutes of the worship service devoted to the people coming together, corporately together in confessing sins? And we want to have biblical churches, but we really don't want to put in the work to do it because we want to hurry up, get in, get out, go home. And think about, I've given you this acronym before, ACTS, A-C-T-S, on how to pray. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Supplication means give me, give me, give me, right? That's where we usually go to first, right? Lord, this is what I want, and this is what I want you to do, and this is when I want you to do it, right? Um, and I've talked with the guys on... Uh, Saturday morning when it comes to us confessing our sins what we tend to do uh, if any of you have uh, kids that uh, do this they throw their clothes into the washer and everything is all jammed together there's underwear socks and inside pants and those things are not going to get clean are they that's how we treat God a lot of times. We just come with all of our sin and we just throw it at Him and say, here, now forgive me of everything. And sometimes, I think that's appropriate. Obviously, if you know there's a specific sin, then you should ask God to cleanse you of that, right? 
But if we use that ACTS, and let's say we were in our quiet time and we were going to do 20 minutes of praying, when's the last time that any of us, myself included, spent four minutes on adoring the Lord, four minutes on thanking Him, two minutes on give me, and ten minutes on confession? Probably a long time since we've done that. Right, uh, turn to James uh, chapter 5. Now most of us, when we think about asking the Lord to forgive us of sins, what do we think of? Something we did wrong, right? We think of negative. So before you get to James 5, or James 5, 16, but I'm going to read 4, 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So sin is not only stuff that we do that's wrong, it's also stuff that we don't do that we know we should do that's right. So we should our confession should include both of those. And so look at James 5, 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So again, I don't think we should be up in here you know, just airing out our dirty laundry in the middle of a morning worship service. But that's why I've said it's important for us to be together in small groups so that we can have that time of confessing to uh, each other. So getting concerned over sin must include personal corporate confession. Any discussion on that or comments on that? And if you want to use something as a guide to help you during your quiet time to confess your sins, Psalm 51 is a great psalm for that. So, all right, third, getting concerned over sin comes in response to the Word of God. Comes in response to the Word of God. That's the testimony of the New Testament. You remember uh, Peter's first sermon in Acts 2? But Peter, standing with eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he goes through and talks about in the last days it shall be God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attest to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And he goes on to talk about how he was resurrected. And then we read in verse 37, Now when they heard this, the word of God spoken through Peter and the word spoken through the prophet Joel, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So the reason that that's the testimony of the New Testament is it's the testimony of the Old Testament. Look at Nehemiah 3 again there. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for three hours and as they read that then saw where they had missed the mark and failed and were sinful then they proceeded to confess uh, sins. And if you look at the rest of Nehemiah, 
Nehemiah um, in verses 9 to 12, it recounts Exodus 2 to 15. And then the next verses, Exodus 19 to 20. Verse 17 is verbatim Numbers 14, 4. 19 to 21 recounts Numbers 9 to 19. And then 22 to 25 recounts Numbers 20 to Joshua 24. And then verses 26 to 31 recounts the book of Judges. And so the final result of all of this is verse 38. Because of all of this, all of God's word that is read back to them and they see where they have fallen short, then it says we make a covenant and we confess our sins. And we're going to get serious uh, about those uh, sins. And so what does it mean for us today? Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 7. Second Corinthians 7, 8 to 10, Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so think about two examples of that is remember the woman at the well? And so Jesus confronts her with her sin. And what did she do? She repented. And she basically goes into town and says, hey, come out here and see this guy that is the Messiah. And then it says that many people believed and actually Jesus stayed two days with them. And many more believed because not of her testimony but because of what Jesus spoke to them. Now contrast that to the rich young ruler. When he was confronted with his sin, which ultimately is what? Covetousness. Actually, when he was first confronted with his sin, what did he say? Well, man, all these things I kept. Give me some more, Jesus. I kept all them. Knowing he's lying through his teeth, right? But then when he's confronted with his ultimate sin of covetousness, what did he do? He walked away self-righteous. So it may be a bitter pill for us to swallow when we get confronted with our own sin, but we need to. And the Word of God is what brings that out uh, to us. So. Alright, any discussion on that? Alright, four, getting concerned over sin. Its basis is a proper view of God. A proper view of God. Remember what I've said before. One of the things I think we may need most desperately in this day and time of Christianity in America is a proper view of God. We get a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves, then I think we'll get concerned over our sin. We'll see some revival break out. Look at the proper view that they had here. Look at verse uh, 5. It says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. That's an attribute of God. He's unchanging, He's uh, eternal. Blessed be your glorious name. He's glorious, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then look at verse 17. It mentions some more attributes of God there. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But look at this. You are a God, six things, ready to forgive, gracious, 
merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you didn't forsake them. So when we get a picture of God and see where we are, then it'll lead us to get serious about sin. You remember in Isaiah 6, when he was confronted with the holiness of the Lord, what did he say? Woe, I am undone, right? He said, Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so if we'll get a real good picture of the Lord in ourselves, then we'll get concerned over the sin in our life. Alright, fifth, getting concerned over sin is grounded in God's covenant. Sixteen times here we in this chapter we see the word give. And the first mention of that is in verse 7 with reference to Abraham. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. So in light of God's covenant and all that he had done for Abraham and his descendants and all God had given them, a land and law and deliverers and victory, all of that had happened because of his covenant, then they got serious about their sin. Remember I've said membership has its privileges, but it also has its responsibilities. And so we have great privileges through the covenant, but we also have responsibilities. And God told them, said, I've set before you today, what, life and death. I've set before you two paths. You can, you know, get serious about your sin and you can receive blessing or you can not be concerned about your sin and you're going to get a good one up against your backside, right? Dr. Wiersbe said we should be grateful God loves us too much to allow us to become spoiled children. So part of getting concerned over sin is grounded in God's covenant. Right now we're under the covenant of what? Grace, right? And so because of that we can just do whatever we want, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other, pers- every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual moral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When we understand the covenant of grace, then we'll be concerned about sin, not to engage in it. All right, sixth thing is getting concerned over sin, except sin for what it is. Sin or rebellion. How would you define sin, or how have you heard it defined before? Stuff you do wrong. Alright, stuff you do wrong. What is the definition of it based on the words in Scripture? The word literally means to fall short, to miss the mark. So, short of what? 
God's perfect standard, right? So some would say, well, it's an impossible standard. And Dr. Tony Evans says, so what we then do is we lower the goal and we dunk on it at four feet and then turn around and congratulate ourselves. But God doesn't lower the standard, does he? The standard is there. And while we may say, well, it's an impossible standard, look at how it's pointed out here in verses 13 to 14 of what God's standard is. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath. And so God's judgment when we err, is it wrong? No. Look at what they said at verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. So all these things that have come upon them, what did they say? Did they equate God with doing wrong? They said you are righteous in what you have allowed to come upon us. Why? Because you dealt faithfully, but we what? Acted wickedly. So um, you said concern over sin on that one. Accept your... sin for what it is. Okay. Sin or rebellion. I mean, ultimately, what is sin? It's rebellion against the Lord, isn't it? I mean, when your kids miss the mark of what you have set for them to do in your house, then do you just consider that, oh, well, that's no big deal? What do you say? They're rebelling. They're a rebellious teenager, right? And so equate that then spiritually to us. When we do the same in sin, is it, oh, well, it's okay, it's covered under the blood of Jesus? Yes, but it also is rebellion. That gives it a whole nother picture when we think of it as that as opposed to just, oh, well, you know, I'm human. Comparing ourselves to others instead of perfection. Right. Like I said, it's lowering the goal down to four feet. Now, if you come over to our house... We occasionally lower down the goal, you know, where I can actually dunk on it because it's impossible for me to dunk on 10 feet. You know, we'll congratulate ourselves. Look at it. Well, I'm sorry, everybody gets a trophy society. Yeah, exactly. Another attitude is, in this, our uh, day and time is what? My sin doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. And so as Dr. Rogers said, that's why the sin that used to slink down the back alley now struts down Main Street. Because we say, well, it just ain't going to hurt nobody. Well, what's the biblical attitude? Look at Psalm 51. That's the biblical attitude. Let's see what David says about his sin. Oh, it's okay. It's just sin. Well, everybody does it. Look at what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned. So what does he say? My sin don't hurt nobody? No, he says it's cosmic rebellion against God himself, and I've done what is evil in your sight. And so he says, look at verse 7, purge me, wash me. Verse 9, blot out. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Look at verse 11. That's what a lot of people need to learn is that, you know, you keep on playing around saying you're a Christian and just sin, sin, sin. The Lord might take the Holy Spirit away from you. Remember, 
in Samson's case, I've said the saddest part of Samson's whole story boils down to one verse that says, and he didn't realize that the Spirit had departed from him. He didn't even know the Holy Spirit was gone from him. And so look at what David says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so same thing in, uh, we see that in Galatians uh, 5. Well, my sin don't hurt nobody. Well, look at what Paul says. He says, these are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And he goes on to say that, look, the people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, it's not just have a ho-hum attitude for it. We accept it for what it truly is, which is rebellion. Alright, number seven. Getting concerned over sin colors itself in the love of God. Colors itself in the love of God. Even in all its ugliness and accepting it for really what it is, rebellion, we must never lose sight of the fact that for the true believer nothing separates them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's an illustration given that a pastor asked a lady that was a prayer warrior in her prayer warrior in his church to go said there was just this thing that had happened in his life you know back years ago and he'd asked the Lord to forgive him but he was just still burdened over this thing secretly and he wanted her to go before the Lord and pray and seek him to see you know what it is uh, that he had done back years ago and so she comes back next week he asked her said that you know you you go before the Lord and seek his face and what this secret burden is that I'm carrying. She said, yes, Pastor, I did. She said, well, what did God tell you? He said, she said, he said he doesn't remember. Because the Bible is clear that he has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he sunk it down to the bottom of the ocean. Why do we go and bring it back up and dredge it back up and beat ourselves over the head with it like a dead fish? One of the songs I love whenever I'm tempted to think about this and never lose sight of the fact that for me nothing can separate me from God as you are more by 10th Avenue North. I mean, I'm more than the mess-ups in my life. You know why? Because I'm a child of the one true king. And so anytime you're tempted to play, as I've said, daisy pedal Christianity, well, God loves me today and he hates me now today because this, or now he loves me, now he don't like me again. Read Psalm 136. I think it's 26 times. It said, His steadfast love endures forever. Romans 8, 38-39. I'm convinced that what? Nothing. You know what nothing means in the Greek? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So yes, we get concerned over our sin, but we don't just sit and beat ourselves up and beat ourselves up. We color it with the love of God knowing that he still loves us, right? Alright, number eight is know that sin spreads. You know the age-old definition of insanity, right? It's doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Wasn't that Israel on a lot of occasions? Especially in the book of Judges? I mean, what did they do? The book of Judges, it's like a train wreck. It's so bad you want to look away, but you just can't. 
I mean, they would do good. The Lord would forgive them. And then they'd be like, oh, we're just kidding. We're going to go back to misbehaving. And they'd misbehave. The Lord would send somebody to, you know, an enemy on them. And then what would they do? They'd cry out, Lord, help us. He'd send them a judge. And then, boom, the whole cycle was just over and over and over, right? Another adage you may have heard is, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But aren't you glad that even though God, Israel was trying to fool God, He never forsaked them, as it says here. He's a gracious, merciful God, always loving us. Alright, um, number nine. Getting concerned over sin understands it has real consequences. May West once said, to err is human, but it feels divine. That's about what our country says a lot of times, ain't it? Mm-hmm. But the air doesn't mean it goes without consequences, right? One pastor said there's no immunity from the consequences of sin. Another one said nobody ever did or ever will escape the consequences of his choices. We may think that we get away with it for a season, but Galatians 6 speaks to that in verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It will come around eventually. The last section on the 8th, what was the verse? Galatians 6, 7, 6. On the one before, I was catching. Oh, um... If you look at verses 26 to 31, okay. I didn't read them, but 26 to 31 talks about that period in Judges where they just went over and over. And if you remember in the book of Judges, what does it say? Everyone did what? What was right in his own eyes. I mean, and elsewhere in Scripture, what does it say about uh, sin? That it's a little leaven spoils the whole bunch. Why is that? Because sin spreads. Why do we have church discipline? Why did Paul tell them, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, to take this one guy and put him out of the church? Because sin can spread inside a body of believers. Alright, so um, back to 9 again. We may think we're going to get away with it, but it's not going to happen. Look at verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since at the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. And look at, I believe it's verse 30. Look at 37. It's rich yield goes. So their yield went to the kings who God had said over them because of their sins and they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. Why? Because of their own sin. Their own sin brought real consequences in their life. So the air may be human and it may feel divine for a season but in the end the consequences will way outweigh the pleasures of it, won't it? Um, 
And then I was telling Cassie, you know, this morning, what we tend to do is we say the devil made me do it, or we try and blame every sin on the devil. And what we fail to uh, appreciate is, yes, the devil does cause some of that, but we're dragged into the muddy pig pen by what? Our own sinful desires. That's what James 1, 14 to 15 says. All right, final thing, getting concerned over sin drives us to renewed commitment to the Lord. I'm sure you've heard this before. D.L. Moody once said, this book, the Bible, will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This is how Jesus put it in John chapter 3. Y'all ever, maybe y'all hadn't had the pleasure like I have of living somewhere where there were cockroach infestation, but you ever had one and you turn on the light and it's like a bazillion cockroaches just run for their life. Look, uh, John three nineteen to 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved what? The darkness. They're like cockroaches when you turn on the light. Turn it on, what do they do? They run. I mean, you get around... For y'all at school, y'all have, if you start talking Bible and Jesus, do you suddenly have a large crowd or it's like you turned on the light and cockroaches took off? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He says the light's coming to the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the light of Scripture, when it's exposed into your life and shined into your life, will either drive you away from that sin and back to the Lord or away from the Lord and back to your pigsty. So they had confessed their sins for three hours and then look at verse 38. Because of all this, it says they were driven back to renew commitment to the Lord. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And so in closing, some of you can't obviously appreciate mainly this first little part of the room over here, but uh, you ever given much thought based on how you feel now to what it's going to be like when you're old? And you say, well, I'm already old. No, no, I mean like old, like 90. How bad your body's going to feel. But, you know, we often, I think, think, well... At 90, I'll finally have it all together. (laughs) And I won't have to worry about sin anymore, right? But it'll just be new sins. Like swap the food tray with whoever is your roommate in your nursing home. (laughs) Knowing yours is no salt and his is salt and you swap them out. Or to trip old Fred. I can see Noah doing that. I can see Noah at 90. Off in nursing home, tripping old Fred with a cane just to get a laugh. <laughs> That's a scary thought, ain't it? Or you may have to refrain from cussing out or punching your grown kids. I've told mine that if y'all ever put me in a nursing home, do not come visit me. Because when you lean over the bed, I said, I'm going to punch you in the esophagus. <laughs> I'm going to punch you. The point being what? We never get to a point in our Christian walk in which we stop being concerned over sin, right? That's right. 
I love this quote that I saw from Billy Sunday. He said, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot, and I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. So I thought that that was a great quote. No matter the season of our life or our walk with the Lord, we have to get concerned over and stay concerned over sin. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for each one that has come out tonight, uh, Father, to uh, come and worship you. And Father, to hear your word proclaimed uh, to us, Father, I pray that you would take uh, this word and through your Holy Spirit just apply it to our hearts. Uh, Father, that each and every one of us can draw that circle and get it and get concerned about the sin in our life, but also in the life of our church as a whole. Father, I just pray that you would bring revival upon Crossway. I pray that you would bring it upon the Big Hatchie Association in Tipton County, that, Father, we can then spread it to our country, for we know that we desperately need it. Uh, Father, we just pray that you would do this in light of your close uh, return. We pray you would keep us safe as we go to our homes tonight and just give us a good night's rest uh, tomorrow and then bring us back safely Sunday that we can worship you. We ask all this in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here and your attention.